good to be with you guys. Um, I'll just reiterate what David said about helping with sound. I always tell my college students that if you learn how to do sound or run slides, you will be a blessing to any church you're part of for the rest of your life. So this is the time, because you've got good people that can teach you. Um, so it, it really is a joy to be back with you again. My name's Kevin Twitt. Uh, I think I know most of y'all was, I was helping out a good bit here uh, during COVID and um, I'm glad to be back this morning. I know David has been doing a series on the book of Acts, um, looking at the early church, um, what were they like, what animated them, um, what drove them, so to speak. And, and I thought it would be a good to look at this passage, um, which seems like three separate stories, but really I think there is a theme that connects them. And, and it has everything to do with the way being in a relationship with Jesus affects you. Um, I, I hope you know that when people met Jesus in his day, it always provoked a reaction. And what's interesting is how often the religious people, the people that you thought would have welcomed Jesus, are, are the ones who really resist him and, and really kind of keep thinking in really constrained little boxes about what spirituality actually looks like. Now, that's a problem in Jesus' day. It's a problem in our day as well. And this section in Mark's gospel deals with a crucial misunderstanding about the nature of true spirituality. And here's the question. Is Christianity about making us miserable? Now, you might say, well, well who believes that? <laughs> well, I don't know if people would believe that who are in the church. But when you actually talk to people and listen to people who are in the church, I can understand why many people would think that. Is, is it true that the more spiritual you are, the more miserable you'll be? Now, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. There's a famous Baltimore resident, a guy named H.L. Mencken. He was a uh, a satirist. He was a journalist. He's actually the guy who, when covering the Scopes trial, came up with the term monkey trial. He was no friend of Christianity, but he was, he was actually very um, perceptive in his critique. And, and one of his famous lines, he said this in defining Puritanism, which now I think this is unfair to the Puritans, but you can see, that you'll, I think you'll get the point here. He said about Puritanism that it's the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And I think we could say that, many people would say that about Christianity. Uh, it's maybe what they've experienced, not only from being inside the church, but even as they interact with people who are part of the church. Judging from the way many Christians live, it's not difficult to see why this idea persists. I think it's very clear in the last few years in particular that Christians are generally known more for what they're against and what they're mad about than for what they love and what they're for. And so as you all are considering the nature of the church, this is a really important idea. What will City Church be known for? What will, what will City Church be known for loving? And that brings us to this passage. 
three stories, I think, that are about seeing Jesus but missing the point. So let's dig into this. First, we're going to pray. Lord, we do thank you that you give us your true word to help us understand who you really are, to open our eyes to see you as the beautiful one in our midst that should take our breath away. May you send your spirit to help us see you truly as more beautiful and believable than all the other things that vie for our heart's affection. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The pioneering hymn writer, Isaac Watts, said this once, religion never was designed to make our pleasures left. And he doesn't mean religion in the pejorative way that we tend to use it. He means Christianity never was designed to make our pleasures less. But I think many of us, if we're honest, would say, you could have fooled me. So we look at this passage, how does Jesus help us? What do we see about the nature of the, who the true Jesus is? The first is this. The real Jesus hangs out with the wrong people. He hangs out with the wrong people. I, I, I don't want you to miss what a big deal it is that he calls Levi a tax collector to follow him. Now, many of us have read the Gospels, we've heard these stories, that I think it's easy to miss what a big deal it is. Tax collectors are awful people. They're not just sinners. They're people who actually cooperate with the oppressive Roman regime. To understand this, you need to know a little bit about the context uh, in this day and era. The, the Romans are an occupying power in Israel. And the tax collectors are those who usually have bought the privilege of raising money in a particular area from the Jewish residents. So what they do is they basically say, here, I'll pay you so much, Roman government, for the opportunity, for the authority to go exact taxes from the people. But here's the thing. The Romans only really cared that they got the amount that was due to them. They didn't care if the tax collectors oppressed people and took more than was due. So, so this is somebody who's not just kind of broken. This is somebody who is an evil oppressor in league with this oppressive regime. And Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the other disciples think about this, but I don't think it's a stretch to think they're not really thrilled. They're not really thrilled. And if you look at verse 16, it's interesting. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to who? Said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? It's like, they're coming, hey, we get it. We're on the same side here. We both are like kind of really disturbed by what Jesus is doing here. I think there's a little hint of that. Jesus doesn't just call Levi to follow him, though. He reclines at table and hangs out with tax collectors, notorious sinners, in public. I think one of the most important things we need to see here is that Jesus is never worried about guilt by association. 
And I gotta say, I just wish that was more true of his people and his church. I get so discouraged when I see things people post online, when I see the way people treat people who are outside the church, they seem so concerned about guilt by association. I'm like, are you kidding me? Look at Jesus. He hangs out with the wrong kind of people. He doesn't just call Levi to follow him. He hangs out at his house with notorious sinners. What do we see here? Well, what I want us to see here is why Jesus hangs out with these kind of people. See, there's something about the heart of Jesus that draws him to these kind of people. With Jesus, no one is ever too far gone. He says that he came for the sick and the helpless. And that explains, of course, why he's hanging out with people like Levi and the prostitutes. But I hope that you hear he's also trying to awaken the Pharisees and the scribes because they too are in need of healing. See, the Pharisees are sick and helpless too. They just don't see it. And it's often that way with religious people. I've heard Tim Keller say it this way, everybody repents of their bad deeds. When people do bad things and they're exposed for that, what do they do? They schedule a press conference, a mea culpa, they apologize, we see it from politicians, public figures all the time. But you see, Christians are those that repent even of their good deeds because they realize even their good deeds are not good enough. And and, and so what we need to see here is Jesus hangs out with the wrong kind of people, not just for the wrong kind of people, but for the quote-unquote right kind of people to understand who they actually are. Because in fact, everyone is the wrong kind of people. And the heart of Jesus is drawn towards them. Jesus wants everybody to get this. George Whitfield great preacher who was used um, greatly of God back in the 18th century. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he really was actually probably the first American celebrity, the first one that everybody from from the north to the south would have known. And many people came out to hear him, and God did a great revival through his preaching back in the 1700s. Um, What's interesting is to look at one of his most famous sermons. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, uh, from a passage where Jeremiah is saying to the king, you are listening to these false prophets who say there's peace, peace, when in fact God's judgment is coming because you have disobeyed him. And and as as Whitfield is kind of developing this theme, he, he says to his to his congregation, really probably a crowd of people outdoors because he preached outdoors all the time. He says, look, before I can say to you, peace, peace, you need to understand that you have to see that all of your duties, all of your religious activity, all of your righteousness is actually what's keeping you from God. This is what he says here. He says, I don't know about you, but I can say that I can't even pray except I sin. I can't preach without sinning. 
My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need to be washed in the blood of my dear Savior. Our best duties, he says, are really splendid sins. And before I can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only repent of your sin, but of your righteousness. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. And I'm so glad we sang that hymn. Thank you, Hitoshi. Um, Hast thou seen him, heard him, known him, right? Tis the look that melted Peter, right? Tis the, the kindness of God, Romans 2, 4 says, that leads us to repentance, seeing the beauty of Jesus. Oh, that the Pharisees and the scribes and the self-righteous people in seeing Jesus eating with the wrong kind of people wouldn't just look down on him and be offended by him, but would see if he eats with people like that, maybe there's hope even for us. Because one of the most difficult things is when you in your self-righteousness realize that your self-righteousness is actually not good enough. That, you know, all the years I've been dealing with college students, many of whom have grown up in the church, I find this so, so common. It's easy for people to say, well, God forgives me for the things I did before I knew better, before I became a Christian, but I don't know what to do with the stuff I've done since then. And this is what you do. You run to Jesus. You run to Jesus because in seeing him eat with the wrong kind of people, it should give you hope that he would eat with you. And we're actually going to celebrate that a little later. If you're the wrong kind of people, if you don't see yourself as the wrong kind of people, I've got news for you. You're the wrong kind of people. You're not the right kind of people that deserve to eat with Jesus, except he provides his blood, his body for us, not because we deserved it, but because his heart is to sit down and feast with the wrong kind of people. There's another aspect of Jesus that we need to see here too. And it's in the second story. Jesus is the true bridegroom. But when you see him as the true bridegroom, you really need to develop whole new categories. Now, this is a story about uh, how John's disciples and, and the Pharisees were fasting, verse 18, and people came to Jesus, and they're like, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting? Well, to understand this question, you need to understand what's the point of fasting? Actually, this is really interesting. There's only one day a year that the Old Testament tells people they should fast. Only one day. And it's the day before the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was when the high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And as part of the rituals around that, God's people were to fast as a way of expressing their sorrow and their hope and their need for cleansing. So fasting has to do with acknowledging your sin and longing for cleansing. That's the point, right? The need for forgiveness is what fasting was highlighting. But Jesus says, if I'm here, everything's changed. 
having a relationship with Jesus, he's saying, should be marked with the assured joy that comes from knowing that you're beautiful in his sight, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. But again, why is it that so many people seem to think, or at least to express, the holier you are, the more miserable you are? What Jesus says is that if I'm here, you don't need to be fasting. You don't need to be walking around, drooping around like everything is just horrible. And, and I think so often we do that just to kind of preemptively get God off our back. I think sometimes we do that. We kind of beat ourselves up, focus on how bad we are, thinking that God will somehow take mercy on us because he just doesn't want to pile on when we feel so bad. But don't you understand that that, in a way, is saying we have to prepare ourselves. We have to do something to induce God to move towards us in grace. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. We don't have to do anything to induce Jesus to move towards us in grace. He is the bridegroom. And I, I, you got to understand what a big deal it is for Jesus to claim to be the true bridegroom. Do you know, the whole essence of the Old Testament, if you boil it down to one idea, it's this. God's promise that he would be our God and that we would be his people, and in particular, that he would marry himself to us. We read as the call to worship this passage from Hosea chapter 2. And it's fascinating that it comes from Hosea. Hosea was a prophet that God called to marry this woman, Gomer, who then kept leaving him and running after and having affairs with other people. And God kept telling his prophet, go bring her back. It's a, it's a parable, lived out parable, saying this is what it's like to be in a relationship with you, Israel. I remember my friend Scott Rowley years ago said, listen, God understands what it's like to be in a bad marriage because he's married to you. <laughs> right? And sometimes we think like he doesn't understand. Oh, he understands. And he says, I'm the true bridegroom. All of that stuff about God marrying himself to his people, Jesus saying, here I am. All that promise about God saying, I will betroth you to myself. There's a day coming when I will put down my battle bow. The warfare between God and sinful man will be ended. And not just that, not just forgiveness, but I will actually marry myself to you. It's so important, brothers and sisters, that we understand that God doesn't save us just to be his little worker bees. Oh, there's plenty of work to be done in the kingdom, right? But it starts with understanding that he came to marry himself to us. And here's what's so tragic here. The scribes and the people are more concerned about who is and who isn't fasting. Do you understand how heartbreaking that must be for Jesus? Jesus is like, here I am, the bridegroom. And they're like, yeah, but look at those guys. They're not fasting. Your followers aren't doing the right things. Oh, do not let, do not let your supposed sense of ins, in, insincerity of God's people keep you from the bridegroom. It, 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 I think of it this way. Be like Jesus 
is kneeling before you with the ring saying, will you marry me? And you're like, yeah, do you see that guy over there? He just rolled through a stop sign. What? Jesus is proposing to you right now, and you're more concerned about what's going on over there. That's when you know, that's when you know that you've lost sight of the real Jesus, that you, he may be right before you miss the point. You've missed the point. Jesus is here, and he's come to marry himself to us. Let your heart soak in that. And then the third point, the third story. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says you've missed the point. So on the Sabbath, it says here in verse 23, Jesus is going through the grain fields, and the disciples begin to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees are upset because what they're doing, they say, is not lawful on the Sabbath. All right, so what's going on? Well, this is what's called gleaning. In the Old Testament law, when you harvested grain, you weren't supposed to take every bit of it. You were supposed to leave some of it so that the poor could go back through the field and be able to provide some for themselves. So what the disciples are doing is not against the rules. The problem is the Pharisees are saying this is work and it can't be done on the Sabbath. But Jesus says you've actually missed the point of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath literally means rest. The point of the Sabbath is to rest in the love of God, not to try to impress him with religious performances or with denying yourself and looking miserable and hungry. Again, it's getting at this idea. What does it look like to be one who faithfully follows Jesus? It's not one who's miserable all the time. Now, I'm not talking about trials and difficulties. I'm talking about people who basically believe that if I really love Jesus, then he would take everything away from me and I'd be miserable all the time. But at least I'd know that I'm better than other people. You ever felt that? <laughs> You ever tried to take comfort in the fact that even though I'm kind of miserable and I'm receiving no joy from my relationship with God, at least I can look down my nose at other people who seem to be enjoying life and enjoying relationship with God. It's tragic. I think of it like the Grinch, like with the heart just kind of shrinking, shriveling up. And sometimes that's where God's people are, right? But what does Jesus say? He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Verse 28, not just the Lord over it. In other words, he says, I am the Sabbath. I am what the Sabbath is about. God rested, you see, after creation. But why? It wasn't because he was tired. It was because his work was done perfectly and he was satisfied. And the question I think that confronts us here is, are we satisfied with the work that Jesus has done? Can we rest in it? The words of the old hymn are good advice. We sing it sometimes. I think Aaron put this to music that we've sung before. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. See, the scribes and the Pharisees have missed the point. They think Jesus is just another teacher with a new teaching. They're upset he's hanging out with the wrong people, that he hasn't done the right things, that his disciples aren't doing the right stuff. 
But it's their righteousness and their judgmental attitude that's keeping them from seeing who Jesus actually is. There's another barrier, though. Sometimes it's our self-righteousness that keeps us from Jesus, certainly what's keeping the scribes and the Pharisees from Jesus. But I think there's also this barrier in thinking that you have to make yourself more presentable to come to Jesus. And, and, and I want to speak to that for a second. There's a great old hymn writer, a guy named Horatius Bonar. Um, he wrote many hymns that we've sung, Not What My Hands Have Done Can Save My Guilty Soul. Um, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. I don't know if you know that one. Um, but he has a wonderful little book where he gets at this issue called God's Way of Peace. If you're trying to figure out what is it mean? How do I come to have a relationship with God? I commend this book to you, God's Way of Peace. It's a short little book. It's 19th century, so the language might be a little unfamiliar, but, but I think you could handle it. But there's a one point where he develops this whole idea, speaking to people who are like, yeah, you know, I want to come to Jesus, but I, I, don't, I don't really, really want to, I, I don't really feel like I've done enough to, to be able to come to him. Or I don't really feel like I long for Jesus enough to come to him. And, and he develops this whole idea. I, I love this phrase. He says, take whatever it is you think you need and add it to Jesus's bill. Think about this as, as we're getting ready to come to the table. If you feel like, Lord, I believe, but I don't really believe all the time, Jesus says, oh, it's fine, add it to the bill. I got it. If you're like, you know, I really want to love my neighbor, sometimes I really hate him. And, and, and I don't really feel like I can come to Jesus in good conscience unless I fix that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Add it to the bill. Add it to the bill. I died for that. I didn't die for people who get it together and then come to me, who need to qualify themselves for my grace. Add it to the bill. You have a cold heart? We, we prayed that prayer of confession, right? Sometimes our prayers are cold and lifeless, and Jesus says, that's okay, add it to the bill. We're going to come to this table, and Jesus says, whatever it is that you feel keeps you from being qualified for this table, add it to the bill, and then you come. But of course, the people that are told not to come are those who refuse to charge it to Jesus' account. Oh, that we would be delivered from that. Do not be caught in that tragic place of looking down your nose at those needy people who need Jesus. <laughs> you are them. And Jesus is here to say, I want to marry you. I want to marry you. You know, I had a, a friend years ago who was dating this guy, and, and, and I'll never remember hearing about her engagement from another friend of ours. Um, she went actually like camping out west for like a week on this trip, and, and, and basically after about a week of not showering, being muddy and nasty and gross as could be, that's when this guy proposed to her. I heard that story from every girl that we knew right? That Jesus would propose to us when we are at our worst. What does that do to your heart? What does that do to your heart? 
That's indeed what we have here. Jesus is the one who eats with the wrong people, who proposes marriage to people who have nothing to commend themselves with and says, rest is here. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and come to him as you are. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for who you actually are. And we pray, Lord, that we would respond to your offer of marriage. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10 millionth time, melt our hearts again with the look that melted Peter because it alone can draw us from idols, from our feeling that we've got to make ourselves presentable to deserve your love. Thank you. Thank you that anything that would keep us from you, you say, add it to the bill. May that draw us today. In Jesus' name, amen.